before our time of worship, I'm going to open up with a devotion. The scripture is Ezekiel 37, verse 14. As I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. The world is full of death, despite the fact that billions of people live on this planet. Few of them really live on this planet spiritually severed from the God who loves them, from the living one, people live transient lives in painfully mortal flesh. We walk among human graveyards waiting to happen. That sounds pretty sick, doesn't it? It certainly doesn't fit the mood of our generation, which believes that all people are basically good and everything's okay. It does, however, fit the biblical assessment of human fallenness. Paul wrote that we, in our natural condition, are dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And Ezekiel's vision of dry bones does nothing to contradict that truth. God even spelled it out long ago in the garden. When you eat of it, the forbidden tree, you will surely die, Genesis 2, verse 17. In a fallen world, death reigns. Christians should appear dramatically different from the world around us. We should seem strangely alive compared to the walking dead of creation. When non-believers observe Christian believers, they should see a spark of life, evidence of a new creation that comes from beyond fallen flesh, the evidence of joy, Purpose and gratitude among people who have those blessings should speak volumes to those who don't have them. In a desolate world, Christians should flourish. Are you flourishing? Does life overflow from your heart? If not, there's some sort of disconnect or obstacle between you and the living one. That doesn't mean that Christians should put on a happy mask for the world around us. We must be authentic. It does, however, mean that a chronic lack of joy and peace and life indicates a problem. If that's the case, ask God to breathe new life into you daily. Invite his spirit to be as alive in you as he was in the bones of Ezekiel's vision. Let him restore and restruct you with the kind of life a dead world needs to see.
about faking. Every step I take in your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm filled with gratitude tonight. Filled with thanksgiving tonight. <laughs> You're better than I know.
your love endures forever, Father. Thank you, God, that for you so loved the world that you sent your one and only Son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but would have everlasting life. Oh God, that we would truly grasp, Father, the love that you have for us. We have, as we've been studying, Lord, and as we have an understanding, God, that from the beginning, your desire and your plan was to, to have a people set apart, that you would call them your own, and that they would call you their God. God, that we would walk in intimate fellowship with you through Jesus Christ. word says now therefore we're at peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord and I pray God that no matter what we're faced with no matter what is challenging us or pressing up against us God that we oh God can have that peace that surpasses all understanding because we're at peace with you if we are in Christ doesn't mean that we won't face tribulation or trials. What it does mean, God, is that you're with us. We can rest assured, God, that you are for us. So may we take our eyes off the temporal things. May we focus them upon you, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it's living through God's power. This is our verse for the year. Let's take a look at that again. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it's living through God's power. And I like to open up with that scripture each Sunday that we're together to remind you that hopefully you're reflecting on it, but just not reflecting on it, but also seeking the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring forth this scripture from your life. That we just can't be a people that hold a form of religion. We just can't be a people that that just talk a good talk and not walk the walk. Like we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live godly lives. Scripture tells us that he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. And I know what we like to do, in and of our flesh, in and of ourselves, we like to excuse the sin in our lives. We have reasons for it. We ought not to excuse the sin in our lives. We ought to deal with it through repentance. Seeking Him who has called us out as His own to live for Him. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. 
the Word of God tells us not to live lives that grieve the Holy Spirit. We live lives to honor God, you all. We've been studying through the Scripture. And my hope is as we're walking through the Scripture that we're getting to know our God. That we're getting to know Him. He's, he's a living God. <laughs> and His plans for us, as we talked about a few weeks ago, are good. He knows the plans that He has for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. And that's how we should be living. No matter what we're faced with. I keep reminding our, us weekly now that we live behind enemy lines. We live in a fallen world. But the hope that we have as Christians is that our God has risen indeed. Remember I told you there's a lot of people who are talking about Jesus. And there's a lot of churches that are preaching about Jesus, but the Jesus that they're talking about or the Jesus that they're preaching about is still in the tomb. And that's sad because he's not the Jesus of the Bible. There's a lot of people who hold a form of religion and not experience the fullness of the resurrected Christ because their Christ is still in a tomb. And they're comfortable with him being in the tomb. They're comfortable expressing, oh, he died for me. <laughs> but they have a hard time understanding <laughs> that he's been risen from the dead. And through that, sin and death are defeated. So sin is no longer to be our master. Doesn't mean we won't sin. But what it means is if we do, <laughs> we feel the conviction to not to allow it to master us. And we in and of ourselves, cannot address sin. And it's only through Christ. And I love when Scripture says to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. We're not to be entangled by sin. We're not to live as the world lives. We are to be a people set apart. Celebrating a risen Savior. It's just not one time a year on Easter. No, it's every day of our lives. Like Our Christ is risen. Amen. He has liberated us. From this flesh that will love nothing more than to drag us to death. But in Christ, all oh, that we would know that our Jesus is risen indeed and we would celebrate it every day. And I keep challenging us. That's something that should be the first thought every morning. And the same thought throughout the day that Jesus is risen. And what hope are you talking to yourself? Are you encouraging yourself? Because it can be so easy to fall into the trap of just being a person that just does a lot of talking, religious works, religious talks, wearing masks, praise God, praise God, and in reality, you're not even praising God. No, no, we need to be people that are experience the power of God every day. Doesn't mean you're going to be giddy and weird. <laughs> no, it just means that you're just living. You're just living because Christ lives. So teach me, Father. How am I to live? Show me the path in which you have set before me. I'm trusting in you. He's a risen Savior. He's not still in the tomb, you all. That's not the message we have to share with people. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. 
We're going to read through Leviticus chapter 19 through chapter 20, verse 21. And as you're turning there, I just want to keep reminding us that your heart and your mind is bombarded throughout your days. Each of us, if I went around the room and, and, and said, what have you been bombarded by this week? Or even this morning? The temporalness of life, the enemy, the world, and your flesh will love nothing more than, than to confuse you or to drag you back. But we must learn to be able to stand in the assurance of who our God is. We must know our God in order to walk with Him. When we lack the knowledge of who He is, we don't know how to live, and so we only go back to what we know. But remember, you're a dead man. And I like to encourage us, as, as dead men and women, we have no rights to the things of this world. The only right that we have is to love our God with our whole being. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your body, with all of your strength. To pursue Him when life is pressing up against you, when temptations come to lure you away, we must be able to stand in Christ. And, and I love when the Bible reminds us that He makes a way out of every temptation. If we chose or if you chose to bite into it, it's your choice. It's your choice. But why would we bite into it? Because at that moment, we think it's better than our God. We think it's more satisfying. We think it's more fulfilling. And that's not how we ought to be thinking. That Christ is enough. No matter how the world is coming against us, no matter how the desires are, are fueling within us, we must get to a place where we're believing that Christ is enough. That God, you are enough. And that we can stand against that which is coming up against us. Living behind enemy lines. We must remain alert. We must remain focused. There's work for us to do. I love when the scripture tells us that he's prepared good works for us to do. Before the earth was formed, God thought of you and he prepared good works for you to do while you're on this earth. You have a purpose not to spend your life on the temporalness of this life, but on the internal things of this life for the kingdom of God, to advance his kingdom for his glory, for his honor, through his power, like daily getting up sharing your faith throughout the day, praying for others, growing in your spiritual disciplines, a fellowship, a fasting, a prayer. You know? Again, it's just not a form. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's just who you're becoming because the old has been done away with. If you're in Christ, if you've accepted Jesus, the old man, the old woman, is done away with. Remember the Bible says, how are we to think? And what is our confession that we've nailed that old man, that old woman, those old desires to his cross. To his cross. And our interest in the world is no more and the world's interest in us is no more. 
Again, we're not seeking to find fulfillment behind enemy lines. No, we're seeking Christ above all. And I love the fact that in Leviticus, what we've been reading through is that God is setting a people aside for himself. As we open up the Old Testament, we've seen that. Again, God's plan and his purpose is to have a people that he will call his own, and in return, they will call him their God, that they would live for him, that they would be a different people than the rest on, on this earth. Because remember, there's all these other nations around God's people, Israel. And God is setting Israel aside so that the other nations can look at her and see there's something different. And remember, as we're reading through the Old Testament, I keep reminding us, as Scripture reminds us, the other nations weren't afraid of the Israelites, but they did fear the God of Israel. And he was instructing them, and he's been instructing them on how to worship him. And as we've been reading all these weird laws and all these sacrifices that are taking place, don't get bored with them. <laughs> don't look past them because all of it points to Jesus. And that's what I want to encourage you as you're reading through the Old Testament, see Jesus in it. Because everything is pointing towards the one who will come. The one in which God spoke of, of whom God spoke of in Genesis. When he said to the enemy, there's going to come one who's going to crush your head. Jesus was spoken of. The Messiah is to come. The Messiah is, is coming, and the Messiah has come. He's come already. But as we're reading the Old Testament, no, it's setting up for Jesus. And so we see all these sacrifices. We see all these rules and laws. And the whole purpose was to keep them set aside for Christ, for, for God. Because remember, as we're reading it, they're made right with God. They're, they're back in the presence of God. Remember when, when they break the law or they, 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 they move apart and they do whatever they want to do, now they're separated from the community of Israel, now they're separated from God. But whenever you see the separation, God always brings provision through a sacrifice to bring them back. And you see that through the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation. That he's a God of wrath and he's a God of, 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 of love, of reconciliation. You can't just speak of his wrath without speaking of his love. And you can't just speak of his love without speaking of his wrath. He's God. His desire is that he would have a people that would belong to him. Not forced, but a people who desire truly to know him as he truly desires to be known and that's the beauty of God he does not hide from us God I love when the new new testament says that God is pleased to reveal himself to us through his son Jesus Paul says the gospel I preach is not because man taught it to me no, God was pleased to reveal himself to me through his son Jesus. God is pleased to reveal himself to you through his son Jesus. And everything within you and everything of this world wants to reject God. Remember, I keep reminding you, we don't want a people who wants to blame God. Hold our fist up to God and say, you're not God. God gets blamed for a lot of stuff. 
But God is just and God is right and God is good. We want to be a people of God. Not a people who are resisting God. Not a people who are holding up our fists towards Him. No, but a people who have been humbled. Whose eyes have been opened to see Him. And that we truly love Him, you all. And we're truly humbling ourselves. God is setting a people apart. They cannot live like the other nations. And his desire and his purpose is that they would remain in fellowship with him. So he's making all these provisions for them to remain with him. And we read through a lot last week, as we'll read through this week in Leviticus. And I love the fact that as we read last week, as God was leading them to the promised land, he was preparing them for how the other people of the other nations live. They were having sex with anyone and anything. They were running amok. They were doing whatever they want. And he was telling his people, you can't do that. You can't do that. You must live differently. You must honor me, basically, with your bodies. Just don't give yourself to anything and everything. No, honor me. Careful of the culture in which you are in. Because it would love nothing more than to drag you out. And so we must, even in our generation, to be able to stand. The, how, the, how the culture is living and the things that are progressing, they don't take God by surprise, and they surely don't strip God of who he is, because God is still God. And God is not going to change who he is so that the culture would approve of God. No, God is still on the throne. He's not wringing out his hands from from what is going on because as we've read scripture, the world is only getting, getting darker. Jesus himself says, this is what the signs of the times are. Know the signs of the time. Be discerning. Like he's returning you all. And you say, well, what's the hope in that? The church is still on the earth. That's why we have work to do. We're to be the light. We're to bear his image. We're to tell other captives that there is freedom in Christ. That there was one who came. Sent by God. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Oh, that's good news, you all. And so we pick up today in chapter 19. Holiness is the theme of this chapter. The Lord also said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This is a scripture I would encourage you to highlight, to underline, to to meditate upon this week. If you haven't meditated upon it already, listen to what God is saying to the community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. 
Each of you must show great respect for your mother and father, and you must always observe my Sabbath days of rest. I am the Lord your God. Do not put your trust in idols or make metal images of gods for yourself. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a peace offering to the Lord, offer it properly so you will be accepted by God. The sacrifice must be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the next day. Whatever is left over until the third day must be completely burned up. If any of the sacrifice is eaten on the third day, it will be contaminated, and I will not accept it. Anyone who eats on it the third day will be punished by, I'm sorry, for defiling what is holy to the Lord and will be cut off from the community. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. And do not pick up what the harvester dropped. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines. And do not pick up grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. And so far what we're hearing is this theme that he is the Lord their God. And again, he's laying out these instructions. And I love the fact that we see God giving instructions on how the poor is to be, their needs are to be met. Even at the time of harvest, they're not gathering just for themselves. They're gathering, but there's specific instructions so that the needs of the poor would be met. And again, we're seeing this about the sacrifice. We're seeing them being told, reminded again, do not make idols. Remember last week when we were studying, they were told, do not not sacrifice outside from the tabernacle. Don't just be out in the wilderness, you know, doing sacrifices. They're not going to be accepted. Because again, it's the purpose of following God's instruction in order to maintain His presence among us. They had to come. They had to present them the way they ought to be presented. They are to to follow everything that's laid out. And this is good for them. That's another thing that we can take away from them. These aren't rules and laws that will burden them. No, these are actually good for them. You see, God's purpose for our lives are good. The Christian life is not to be this burden life, like, oh, I can't do this, or I can't do that. Because if that's our mentality, if that is our heart, then we don't understand the fullness of who Christ is and what he's calling us to. No, we willingly lay them down. We're not forced, but we willingly lay them down because we recognize that it's not good for me. Remember, I've always told you, the flesh only knows to do one thing, and that's to die. So everything your flesh is craving is only going to lead you to death. Nothing good can come from the flesh. 
And that's why we're not to walk according to the flesh. No, we're to walk habitually in the spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Because where does sin come from? It comes from the desires that are from within. And we've got to deal with those desires. Those desires aren't going to go away. The Bible says in Galatians that the flesh and the spirit, they're at constant war with each other. But as I've encouraged you all, what you feed breeds and what you starve dies. So you don't want to feed your flesh. No, you want to feed your spirit. You, you want the life, the word of life. That's what you want to be feasting off of. Because the things that God has for us are good. Do you remind yourself of this daily? Because you ought to be. Because if not, something's going to pop up and it's going to look better than God. You're going to give yourself to things and to people and to idols and to everything else. But when you truly grasp the fact that God is good and his plans for you are good, his, his, his standard of holiness is good for you. It's not bad for you. You're not missing out on the things of this world. You don't want to be drawn to the things of this world. No, you want to be rooted in Christ. And so I love the fact that as we're seeing this, he's laying all of this out and he keeps reminding them, I am the Lord, your God. Verse 11, do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely, I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice and in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You must obey all my decrees. Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two different kinds of seeds. Do not wear clothing woven from two different kinds of thread. If a man has sex with a slave girl whose freedom has not been purchased, but who is committed to become another man's wife, he must pay full compensation to her master. But since she is not a free woman, neither the man nor the woman will be put to death. The man, however, must bring a ram as a guilt offering and present it to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest will then purify him before the Lord with the ram of the guilt offering, and the man's sin will be forgiven. When you enter the land and plant fruit trees, leave the fruit unharvested for the first three years and consider it forbidden. Do not eat it. 
And the fourth year, the entire crop must be consecrated to the Lord as a celebration of praise. Finally, in the fifth year, you may eat the fruit. If you follow this pattern, your harvest will increase. I am the Lord, your God. Do not eat meat that has not been drained of its blood. Do not practice fortune-telling or witchcraft. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. Do not defile your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will be filled with prostitution and wickedness. Keep my Sabbath days of rest and show reverence toward my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not defile yourselves by turning to mediums or to those who consult the spirits of the dead. I am the Lord your God. Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, width, or volume. Your scales and weights must be accurate. Your containers for measuring dry materials or liquids must be accurate. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You must be careful to keep all of my decrees and regulations by putting them into practice. I am the Lord. Don't miss out on that last line there. By putting them into practice. So important, you all. That we are applying truth that we're learning and that we are receiving to our lives in order for us to be able to live it. Remember, we're not just to be hearers of the word, we're to be doers of the word. And we understand, too, that as, as we're reading through these laws and, and, and we we're reading through all these different things that he's requiring of the Israelites, a lot of that stuff didn't transfer over into the New Testament. Some of it did. Some of the standards still re- re- apply to us today, especially when it comes down to sexuality. But all the other commandments and the different things that are laid out for the Israelites didn't transfer over, if you would, into the new covenant because Jesus fulfilled all of it. We're not striving in and of ourselves to keep the commandments because Jesus has fulfilled them. He didn't come to do away with them, but he's fulfilled them. So what does that mean for us? Well, if we're in Christ and we're following Christ and we're learning of Christ and we're applying truth to our life, we're not going to be stealing, killing. You know, we're not going to be, you know, envious or or jealous or we're not going to live in a way that, that brings forth death. No, we're living in a way that brings forth life because Jesus is life. And we're not striving to be perfect because we know Jesus is perfect. And we know it's only through his blood and it's only through him that we're at peace with God. So we're learning how to honor God. We're walking in obedience. Because remember, Jesus even says, consider the cost. Before you accept me, consider the cost because it's going to cost you everything. He doesn't force people to follow him. 
He reveals himself to you. It's your choice to live for him, to love him. And to living, and for living for him and loving him, it's not, it's not this burden that, oh, like I keep telling you, a lot of Christians, they live this weird life. Like, oh, it's just so hard, it's just so hard. Well, it's so hard because you're making it hard. If we will learn just to abide in Christ, if we will learn just to walk in Christ, if we will just apply daily truths to our lives, little by little, taking steps, maturing and growing. Remember, you're not going to be perfect, but you ought to be maturing. You're not living like your old ways. If you were lazy before Christ, you're not to remain lazy. Work. If you had a foul mouth before Christ, you shouldn't have a foul mouth. Like he's working things out in us. If all you did was lie, that should change. You're transformed now. You're learning to say what is true. So there's a way to live. There's a way to honor God. And so God was setting up a standard for them, and that standard hasn't changed. Holiness is still the standard. Not because man says, but because God says. And holiness doesn't have to do with uh, uh, the, the, the rituals, or I have to do this, I have to live this way, I have to live that way. No, holiness is, 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 is in Christ and Christ alone. Like we're holy because Christ is holy. And so our position that we're reminded all throughout the New Testament is that our position is in Christ. And so if, I, if that is my truth, if that is your truth, then that is what you, you know to be true. So you're not going to allow things to come against the knowledge in which you're holding on to, to the one in whom you're clinging to. That you're able to have the strength because he gives you the strength. That it doesn't become this burdensome law on us. No, it's just who we are because we throw it off and say, all for Christ, all for you, Lord. I don't want, I don't want that. I don't need that. Like, God, there's a way to live. That your kingdom come, that your will be done. And remember, this Christian life, above all, is to be lived for Christ and not for ourselves. We're to think of others before we think of ourselves. Remember, I keep encouraging you all. You ought to be a servant to others. And with a grateful heart, with, with gratitude, not burdensome. Like, oh, I've got to do... No, because that's just Christ came to serve. And so how do we live behind the enemy lines? Humbled. Serving others. We don't hate the lost. They have every right to live however they want. These nations, back in the time of Israel, they can live however they wanted. But God was setting apart a people and saying, this is how you're to live. This is what needs to be done. This is how you're going to honor me. Because by doing so, you're going to remember that I am the Lord your God. And that's what I love about all this. All of these laws and all of these rules and everything that he's setting up. Look what he says after each one. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Every time that they practice, they put it into practice, they were remembering he is the Lord our God. He is the Lord our God. And as soon as they stopped putting it into practice, guess what? He was no longer their God. They wandered off. 
they got entangled with all these other nations. As we're going to read on through the Old Testament, we're going to see that. They were now worshiping idols. They were sacrificing their kids to Molech. They were doing things and, and, and crazy things that they ought not to have done because they stopped putting into practice that which God has purposed for them to remind them that he is the Lord, their God. So that's the beauty of this Christian life. Like daily in our surrender, not because he's forcing us because he's a mean God, no, because there's no greater way for love to be expressed throughout creation than one that will lay down their life for their friend. Love is displayed. That's why Jesus came. He laid his life down for us. No greater love than this. And Jesus is our example. So we're to serve. We're to go forth. We're to uphold truth. We're not to beat it over people's heads. We're not to give them the law. Remember I keep telling you what we've done wrong through time is that the church teaches and preaches the law, the Christian life, without first sharing the Christ, Jesus. We give them, we want them to understand the kingdom, but they don't even know the king. So we must do things in order. We must talk about our, our, our Savior. We must live for Him. They must see a different in us so they can say, there's something different about you. And you don't point to yourself. You say, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who not only came to set me free, but desires that all men be free. No longer a slave to sin, but made alive to live for God, to honor God, to know your God. This is the hope we have, you all. So don't miss out on that. So many times the book of Leviticus is used to push back on Christians. Ah, look at your God. Look at this. Ah, look at, oh, you don't do this to the day. So why are you doing? It's the most craziest thing. Don't get in silly arguments with people. Don't get in silly arguments or get or have your you know faith shattered because maybe what they're saying seems legit. No, 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 no. You stand in the assurance of who your God is. What's the whole purpose of this? Is for them to know their God. For them to know their God. It goes on here in chapter twenty. We're going to read through verse twenty-one. The Lord said to Moses, Give the people of Israel these instructions which apply both to native Israelites and to the foreigners living in Israel. If any of them offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, they must be put to death. The people of the community must stone them to death. I myself will turn against them and cut them off from the community because they have defiled my sanctuary and brought shame on my holy name by offering their children to Molech. And if the people of their community ignore those who offer their children to Molech and refuse to execute them, 
I myself will turn against them and their families and cut them off from the community. This will happen to all who commit spiritual prostitution by worshiping Molech, this other foreign god, which is no god at all. The people worshiped this god by sacrificing their children. And God is telling them, like, this cannot be. And we're going to find out that that's what they end up doing. And look at the, the severity of what God is saying. And as, as we continue to read, you're going to be like, oh, gracious. Like, God is serious about what he's establishing with his people. Not only are they cut off from him, they're cut off from the community. See, even back here, and we've talked about that over the past couple of weeks, that community is so important to the people of God because it's important to God. Community is vital in order for you to continue to grow and to mature. You must be part of a community of believers where you are encouraged, where you are edified, where you are built up, where you are held accountable. That you're transparent before others. It's not about coming just to come to church. No, we are the church. It's not about just putting, putting on a face and pretending like everything has been great. No, you're living out in community with people. That again, that you would be held accountable, that you would be encouraged, that you would be edified, and that you would be built up to continue to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your body, and with all of your strength. God has given us this precious gift of the church. As he gave back in the Old Testament the precious gift of community of his people. (coughs) And that's why it's so vital, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Sin cannot be mastering the church. Sin cannot just be allowed to to reign and rule in the church. No, it must be dealt with. As it was here, it must be dealt with here in the New Testament. It must be called out in hopes that the individual will be restored. That's the whole beauty, that's the beauty of it all, is this picture of restoration. First with God, and then with the community. But the problem is that sin is running rampant in the church. And it ought not to be. It ought not to be in your individual life, and it ought not to be in the church. It should be dealt with. Again, it's not that you're not going to sin, but sin should not be mastering you. It should not be the way you live. Because something's wrong. Something's wrong to, to profess Christ and yet not and live against him, and yet live against him as his enemy. Something's wrong with that. And yet we've grown comfortable. Remember, we are behind enemy lines. The enemy will love nothing more than to to, to come in. And and we're warned all through the New Testament that the wolves are among us. That the Antichrist, these teachings, everything that's, that's like 
rising up, especially in our generation and what we're seeing. Like, we better know truth. We better be able to stand up against it because there's so much stuff out here that's stripping down the gospel that's anti-Christ, anti-Jesus. And people are making Jesus to be the Jesus they want. And as I said earlier, they're worshiping a Jesus that is still in the tomb. And we as the church can't go along with it. We can't applaud it. We can't just sit back and go, that's just the way the culture's going. No, you've got to stand. And you say, well, if I stand for truth, then people are going to look weird, or they're going to make fun of me, or we're going to get pushed. But it doesn't matter. We must be able to stand upright in a crooked and wicked, perverse generation. We must be able to stand in the assurance, as I keep saying, of who our God is. If we just don't get bent, and we just don't do just because it's what we're supposed to do. These people should have known not to turn to Molech and start sacrificing their children. I mean, for goodness sakes, God himself was with them. God himself was speaking to them. God himself parted the sea and they walked through it. God met their provision. God was so real to them. (laughs) And yet, they were so influenced by the culture because, again, they stopped practicing what he told them to do. And so now he's telling them. And as we're going to continue to read through these verses, you're going to see he, he wasn't playing. I will also turn against those who commit spiritual prostitution by putting their trust in mediums or in those who consult the spirits of the dead. I will cut them off from the community. So set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. Who makes you holy? God makes you holy. And no, they shouldn't be turning to the occult. And yet the occult is rising up. And the crazy thing is it's rising up in the church as it did with the nation of Israel. It's incredible some of the stuff that I hear that's going on in Christians' lives and and, and what's going on and accepting in the church. Things haven't changed. We're not to look to others to tell us of our future. That hasn't changed because Christ came. No, he is God. Remember, God knows the plans that he has for you. You don't have to go consult the dead for truth or for insight. And yet it's being promoted. Something's off. That's why you must know your God so that you're not being led astray. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Such a person is guilty of a capital offense. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. If a man violates his father by having sex with one of his father's wives, both the man and the woman must be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a man has sex with his daughter-in-law, both must be put to death. They have committed a perverse act and are guilty of capital offense. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man, as with a woman, both men must, 
I'm sorry, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, he has committed a wicked act. The man and both women must be burned to death to wipe out such wickedness from among you. If a man has sex with an animal, he must be put to death, and the animal must be killed. If a woman presents herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it, she and the animal must both be put to death. You must kill both, for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a man marries his sister, the daughter of either his father or his mother, and they have sexual relations, it is a shameful disgrace. They must be publicly cut off from the community. Since the man has violated his sister, he will be punished for his sin. If a man has sexual relations with a woman during her menstrual period, both of them must be cut off from the community, for together they have exposed the source of her blood flow. Do not have sexual relations with your aunt, whether your mother's sister or your father's sister. This would dishonor a close relative. Both parties are guilty and will be punished for their sin. If a man has sex with his uncle's wife, he has violated his uncle. Both the man and woman will be punished for their sin and they will die childless. If a man marries his brother's wife, It is an act of impurity. He has violated his brother, and the guilty couple will remain childless. And a lot of people use these scriptures to hold up their fists to God and say, you're not God. What a bad God this God is. Who would worship such a God? But let me tell you something. God is serious about his presence, his standard of holiness. God is serious. They will be cut off. They will be put to death. He's not playing. This was serious. All these other acts that we just read about are happening everywhere else in all the other nations. And he's telling his people, you are to be different. And if you get caught up in all of that, this is how you will be dealt with. Now, praise be to God. In the New Testament, we're not out killing people. (laughs) We're offering hope. The Bible says that, and they list all of them. And some of you were once, but you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. The same sexual activities that are going on here shouldn't be going on now. But we recognize that in our generation, the perversion is rising up. And I've always told you, whenever you see the occult rising up, perversion comes right along with it. That's how the enemy works. He seeks to devour. He seeks to destroy. But we must remember as the church that the gates of hell cannot prevail. The enemy has no authority over your life and he surely has no access to you unless you give it to him. That's why the Bible warns us. Don't give the enemy even a foothold. Because you give him a foothold. He's going to develop a stronghold. 
And remember what a stronghold is. It's a pattern of thought that you now are in agreement with that is contrary to God's truth. And you say, well, where's the good news in that then if I have these strongholds? The Bible says that the Lord gives us the weapons of our warfare to demolish those strongholds. Like, there's a way to freedom, you all. There is freedom found in Christ. And I love the fact, and listen to this, because this is important. I love the fact that all these scriptures pointed out all these different sexual acts. It didn't just harp on homosexuality. And what the church has done throughout the years is they just harped on homosexuality. Bad, bad, bad. And yet adultery is running amok in the church. All this other crazy sexual stuff is running amok in the church. And no one is saying anything about that. And of course the homosexuals then, especially coming from the homosexual community, are looking at the church going, Man, you want to point your finger at me? Dad, no. That's why I couldn't stand the church. I couldn't stand Christ. I couldn't stand the church. You just want to call me out, but you don't want to deal with yourselves. And then you want to invite me to come among you and to know your God for what reason? Because you don't even know your God. It's the most craziest thing. We're telling others how they're supposed to live. We're not giving them Jesus, like I said earlier. We're just telling them, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And yet we don't even do what we're telling them that they have to do. And so there's so much confusion. And where is Christ in the midst of us? Nowhere. Because sin is mastering us. God help us to be able to be people who are worshiping their God and living for their God. He's not just harping on homosexuality. He's saying all of it. You, you're not to be perverted. You're not to be enslaved to perversion. And as I said before, the craziest thing is, is that ho the hotel industry, when I read the, the numbers, that they know that their porn sales will increase when there's a Christian conference in town. How crazy is that? And I remember reading the article, and, and the front desk people were like, and they laughed because then the Christians from room such and such and such and such that has one of the highest bills for porn is leaving them a track at the desk. What kind of craziness are we living? Oh, because we can hide it. <laughs> but we can pretend. Remember, it's not about just a lot of talk. It's about living through the power of Christ. I said, you know what? God help us. God help us. Always pointing out everyone else. Always wanting to deal with the speck in everyone else's eye, but not the log in ours. Oh, God help us. No, perversion is not to be a mark of the people of God. God created sex, and sex is good. And are we teaching our children this? Why are we allowing the world to teach our children what sex is? 
Especially in this culture nowadays where it used to be like the talk of the teenage years. No, you got to start young. You got to let them know sex is good. It's not nothing. It's not bad. It's not forbidden. Ooh. No, sex is good in the way that God has designed it. And you must allow them to be open and honest with you about their desires and their feelings and not get all wigged out if they tell you, I, I like the same sex. No, you just need to talk with them. Or they're roused up and they just want to have sex and do all these weird sexual acts that young kids are doing now. Like, no, no, no. We as the church must celebrate sex with the understanding of how God designed it and train up our children in the way in which they should go to teach them how to honor God with their bodies as they're seeing us honoring God with our bodies. Like, this is serious stuff. Back in the day, oh, God wasn't playing. No, these people were killed. Oh, they were, they were stoned to death. In fact, one of them was burned. <laughs> Burn them up in front of them. This is how God dealt with it. It could not run rampant. It had to be deal with, dealt with severely. And as it should be in the church today, we're not killing people, we're not stoning people, uh, but we ought to be setting people out. Paul had to deal with it in the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth, it was a perverse city. I don't know if you ever studied. See, when I'm with you, I kind of give you the, you know, just a general hopes and application of, 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 of the truth of God's word. But there's so much more that you can learn if you just take the time and really go sit and then study and read. But the church of Corinth, when I did a study on that city years ago, it's a vile, wicked city. And yet God was so gracious and so kind to establish a church there. And these perverted people were coming to church. I would have been among them. And then all of a sudden, Paul hears that there's this man who's sleeping around. And no one is saying anything about it. And Paul says, turn him over to Satan. Put him out in hopes that his soul will be saved. And I think what the church has done wrong throughout the generation is they just put people out. They shame them. They degrade them. And they put them out with no hopes of being restored. And how sad. What a, what a horrible thing to do. You know, I've always used Norma as an example. When we had to set Norma out. She chose that she was going to go back and live the way she wanted to live and sleep with whoever she wanted to sleep with. Well, okay, but you can't stay here. But we didn't do it in a shameful way. Yes, did it hurt her? Yes. Was she angry? Yes. But when God was moving yet again in her life, did she hesitate to pick up the phone? To call? No. Because she knew. 
She knew. And each of us should know. That's, that's, the, that's the ways of the, of the Christian community. And so it's not just for the ways of dealing with homosexuality. No, it's dealing with sin. Like, no, you just can't keep doing that among us. No, you just can't keep promoting that. That's not, what is that? It's vile, it's wicked, whatever it is, it's sin. Like, no, we need to deal with it. We need to get rid of it. And if you choose not to repent, if you choose not to honor God, then you have every right to live however you want. So go. The door's always open. To return. Because again, the hope is restoration. We see it all through the Old Testament as we're reading. Cut them off. And then we see some here that were dealt with severely. Because it's an issue. And God is not going to allow His holiness his presence to be tainted. And the image I give you all a lot, if you've been around me preaching and hear me preach long enough, is that we can't treat Jesus' blood so common that we're just splashing in it and just splashing it up on people as if it's nothing. Because what kind of craziness is that then? We're talking about his blood. That washes us clean. Like he drained every ounce from himself. So that we could be free. Free people. People of hope. Not a people enslaved, you all. We're not to be a people enslaved to sin. He dealt with it harshly. And again, you're going to find people out there that's going to throw Leviticus up to you. And they will use, this is the most, if there's any book of the Old Testament that the lost used to really push up against Christians, it's Leviticus. But don't you dare let them soften you. You must stand for what is right. God's word is what it is, and I'm not going to apologize for God. God knows best. He knew what was needed to be done during this time. And praise God, he knew what ultimately needed to be done when he laid himself down on the cross. So whenever I talk to people and they want to throw up Leviticus, I just bring them to the cross. No, you really want to see what's painful? You really want to see truly who God is? Like he gave his one and only son. Like he willingly went to the cross so that you wouldn't be dragged out and stoned to death. That you wouldn't be dragged out and murdered, killed. God's love you all. There's nothing that can compare to it. His grace, His mercy. Do we truly grasp it? Oh, I pray that we would. I pray that we would know that we know that we know who He is. I told you all. When I came to Christ, when, when I was 
walking through that period of time where it was just a lot of torment going on in my mind and in my heart. I didn't have any church folks around me. Churches didn't want me among them. I kept being told I was the devil. I kept being told how I was going to come in and pervert everyone. And that weighed so heavy on me. But God. I said, God, I wouldn't have created this. I wouldn't have started this in and of myself. I would have stayed who I was. I was quite content and happy for what I thought was being content and happy, even though I wanted to kill myself. But I said, God, I want to know you. I don't want you to be, I remember saying this almost every day, I don't want, I don't want to create you. I don't want you to be a God whom I create or put limitations on. I just want to know you. I just want to know you. That's it. I just want to know you. And all that would be our heart's cry. Like, do you say that? Because even though that's how I started then, I still say that. Especially when days are hard. Especially going through the seasons that I just went through. God, I just want to know you. Like everything else is screaming around me. Everything else is bombarding my heart and my mind. God, I just want to know you. It's such a simple prayer. He longs to be known. It can't just be a lot of talk. It has to be who you are. I mean, there's people sitting in churches today. People are gathering in churches today. Having a form of religion and denying this power. Those are the people we are told to stay away from. We're not told to stay away from the, the lost. The people that we're warned to stay away from are people who hold a form and deny his power to transform. They're going in. We're all going in and we're going to go right back out the same. And God's blood is just being splattered, stepped on as if it's nothing. It's just common. Uh, okay. Uh. God help us you all not to be those people. Not to, not to be enslaved with envy, with jealousy, with perversion, with unforgiveness, with any type of sin that would be mastering us. No. Remember, back in Genesis we even learned, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to master you, but you must master it. You must confront the very sin that's within you and you must throw it off as you come to a place of repentance daily and saying oh God breathe yet again afresh and anew within me that I will live and not die that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living teach me Holy Spirit You've been given to me as my teacher, as my comforter, as my guide. Help me to walk habitually and step with you that I may not gratify the desires of my flesh. Are you talking this way? Are you, are you, are you saying these things? Because you ought to. Because if you're just hearing what I'm saying on Sundays, then 
I'm telling you, that's not going to do you anything. You have to put it into practice. You have to live it. You have to live it. You have to live it. You have to hate sin as much as God hates it. That's the bottom line. You have to see how destructive it is. And we must hate it as much as God hates it. Because God, you all, desires for us to be his people. I mean, there's no greater call than that than to be the people of God. Go to Mark, chapter 8. So don't let Leviticus scare you or move you to a point of raising your fist towards God and how dare you God because he's God he knows what is right and again we ought not to be apologizing for him Mark chapter 8 verse 11 through 38 a portion of reading from the New Testament chapter 8 verse 11 through 38 let me find myself All right, here we go. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And let's not forget, these Pharisees are religious men. They were the people of God, yet they didn't know their God. They had a lot of knowledge of God, but they did not know God. And how sad is that? Here, God himself was before them, and they had no clue. And now they've come to challenge him yet again. And when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I would not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. <laughs> they had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, because of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other, because they had forgotten, I'm sorry, they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with the lo five loaves of bread and how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? They said, 12 they said, and when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven they said, do you understand yet, he asked them? Listen to what he's saying to them. Listen, they, they've already seen him, you know, feed the 5,000, the 4,000. And yet when he tells them this warning and he warns them to beware 
of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, and instead of, of, of unwondering truly what he meant by that, they turned back to the temporalness of life. Oh, we, didn't have, we don't have enough bread. We only brought one loaf. And they totally forgot that he's the God that just fed all these people. Oh, but before we start making fun of them or pointing fingers at them and saying, oh, how could they? How could you? How could I? We forget so easily what God has done already. And I love, if you want something to highlight, underline, or to think upon this week, is verse 17. Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Is your heart too hard? It's a question for you to ponder with Christ this week. I have eyes to see and ears to hear, God. Is my heart too hard that I'm not understanding? God, soften my heart. Let me know. They weren't gaining. They, 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 they weren't gaining understanding. Because as we see, they kept going back to the temporal things of life. Instead of truly recognizing who he is. And listen, we see that all through up. Up to, up to the cross. Up to the crucifixion. But after he rose from the dead. After the Holy Spirit descended. He came upon and within the believers. They weren't li- were living this wishy-washy life. They knew their God. And they walked in the authority and the assurance of who he is. No different than that we no different than us. We too can walk in the assurance, not living these wishy-washy lives tossed by every form of doctrine and teaching and these waves that come around. No, no, no. We can stand in the assurance because we have the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said earlier when I opened? The Bible says that you've been given everything you need to live a godly life. The reason you may not be experiencing a godly life is because you're refusing to take what you have and apply it. And so God's not at fault. It's you. It's me. If our heart is hardened, it's you. It's me. No, we must trust God in His sayings and His teachings as the Spirit is leading because the Holy Spirit will never lead us in the wrong path. No, he's there to confirm everything that Jesus has already established. And so here they were. And then Jesus reminds them, do you not remember what I've done already? I don't know about you, but there's been seasons in my life where Christ has had to remind me. Do you not remember, Rob? And yet you find yourself in this place where you stop worshiping me. And you're so consumed with fear. You're so consumed with the unknown. You're so consumed with, with discouragement. You're so consumed by all of this other stuff. But don't you remember, Rob, who I am and what I've done? 
Oh, and as soon as you remember who he is and what he's done, you can't help but praise him. That's why I always encourage you. Keep a journal. Because there's been seasons in my life where I really couldn't draw on anything that he has done. That's how hard my heart has at God. I don't see you anywhere, God. And I would go back to my journals and I would begin to read them. Oh, I remember. Oh, I remember. And I told you about the season of my life where I thought, okay, I'm done. I don't see you anywhere. I'm tired of this. Who wants to live this way? I don't want to do this anymore. This Christian life is the most chaotic, craziest thing I've ever seen before in my life. I don't want this anymore. And I started making my plan of escape. And as soon as Gilda was out to sleep, I was getting up to take my bag out. <laughs> and I told you, as soon as I got to the bedroom door, the Holy Spirit, as if God himself was standing in front of me. So what are you doing? I'll never forget this. What are you doing living? Like, oh God. Like I'm a dead man. How did I get myself here? I was about just to look at God and look at his everything about him, look at the cross, look at the empty tomb and said, no, I don't believe in that anymore. Like, how did I get there? How does one get there? Because they take their eyes off of him. Your heart becomes so hardened and you're only focusing on the temporalness of life. So that's why I keep telling you as we're reading through the book of Psalms, the encouragement we get from the book of Psalms is to look up. These men, these psalmists face the most <laughs> craziest circumstances. And they're pouring out their hearts. They're, they're, they're exposing their depression and their anxiety. They're just laying it all out. And as soon as they do, they look up. But God, but God, when's the last time you said that to your circumstances? But God, God, you are great. God, you are good. I remember hitting my knees on that floor just going, oh God, forgive me. Like in a moment, his embrace, everything, was like, oh, it was so fresh and new. I'm like, oh God, he didn't beat me down. He didn't tell me what a horrible Christian I was and yada, yada, yada. No, he embraced me as he does with all of us. He doesn't hold a stiff arm out to us. No, his arms are open to embrace us. We're the ones holding a stiff arm out to him. Whoa, that we would change our views. <laughs> that we will focus and fix our eyes upon him. And that we would remember what he has done. It goes on here. In verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were open. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. 
Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do you say, I'm sorry, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, I'm sorry, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. And this is important, you all. Who do you say that he is? You know what other people are saying, but who do you say? Who do you say that he is? And this revelation that Peter received is not one that Peter thought of himself, no, it was given by the Holy Spirit. It is God that opens up our eyes to reveal himself. Remember what I said earlier, what Paul says. This gospel that I preach is not because man taught it to me. No, because God was pleased to reveal himself to me through his son Jesus. Oh, that that would be a statement that we would say. I just don't talk about Christ because I went to church and it was taught to me. No, I believe because God was pleased to reveal himself to me through his son Jesus. And as he was with me, so he is with you. That your eyes would be open and to know that God is pleased to reveal himself. He's not hiding himself. He's not holding himself back. His desire and his will is that none shall perish. Oh, that others would come to the saving knowledge of Christ because we're sharing the gospel with them, you all. And Jesus, last week he spit and touched the man's tongue. <laughs> this week he spits in the man's eyes. Jesus does what he wants. I, I don't have the, the understanding of it. I've read different commentaries. I've read all these prophetic insights. And so if you want more insights, there's a lot out there to read. But I've just come to the conclusion, Jesus, however you want to do it, it's done because you are the healer. And he still heals today. So we can praise him for that. We can come to him praying for others, praying for ourselves, for his healing touch, bringing people to him. But God is good, you all. But this is where we're going to start seeing now that Jesus' teaching is now going to shift from doing a lot of miracles from going out into a lot of towns and, and different things, he's now in his teaching to the disciples, it's now all going to be about the cross. This is where you start shifting. And that's why this, this question is important. Who do you say that I am? Who are others saying that I am? And who do you say that I am? Because now it's all going to change. He's going to start talking now specifically about his purpose, the cross. Then Jesus, verse 31, began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law, 
He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will, I'm sorry, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? If anything worth more than your is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. Wow. See what Jesus says there? You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And he reprimanded Peter. Peter wasn't Satan. But Satan was using Peter. No, 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 no. That's not how it's going to be, Jesus. How could you say that? Remember, at this time, the disciples still were thinking that he was going to be this temporal king. That he came to to set them free from the Romans. That to reestablish the Israel, Israelites, and the, the nation of Israel to be this prominent nation. And they would be a free people. What is your view of Jesus? Because it ought to be the right view. It ought to be the right view. He didn't come to make the world right, you all. I know that's what we hope. I love this one phrase that I, I heard. Uh, I forgot who said it. I don't know if it was Spurgeon or who said it, but it doesn't matter. He says, Jesus didn't come into the world to make men good. He came. To call men to die. To die to self. The Christian life is not to make you a better person. Like, ooh, everything's perfect, and look, I'm a better person, this and this and this and that. It's not about it's not about you, it's not about your life here. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all for his kingdom and for his glory. I mean, we have brothers and sisters who are willingly laying their life down daily. I just posted something today where this pastor was dragged out of the prayer meeting over in India. They beat the hell out of him. They arrested him. I mean, our brothers and sisters are facing the most brutal times ever on the earth. That's what they're saying. And I go, that's interesting, because I remember reading reports in Rome where they used to take Christians and light them on fire to light the ways of the streets, and people would just walk the streets while these people were burning. They would gather them in a coliseum, and people would cheer the death of these Christians. 
And yet they're saying that the day and age in which we are living and entering into are going to be the worst times for Christians. God help us to be able to stand for our faith. Not living for him to make things, my life, better here. That doesn't mean he's not going to take care of us. doesn't mean that, you know, things aren't going to be right in essence, but that shouldn't be our, just our focus. No, it's about his kingdom. It's about advancing his kingdom for his glory, for his honor, through his power. Like, God, have your way. And so Jesus had to reprimand Peter. And then he called the crowd around him, and he tells them, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, you're going to learn the way of death. You're going to learn to die. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And keep this in mind. Is anything worth more than your soul? Think about that this week. When things are being presented to you, when things are bombarding your heart and your mind, is anything worth more than your soul? Help us, you all, to know who our God is. Go to Psalm chapter 42. I mean, it's Psalm 42. We're coming to a close. Psalm 42. Again, Jesus, that is good, you all. Oh, that you would just walk out of here today and that's all you said, God, you're just good. Like there's no fault to be found in him, you all. There's no fault. I remember having a, a list a mile of long of accusations towards God. And yet all along not knowing the desperate need I, I had for him. Fighting him with everything that I had, searching. That's what we do. Like we're searching out there to be fulfilled. We're searching and we're creating these false gods. We're doing and we're just trying everything and anything that's out here just to feel some sense of peace. And all along, God is like, I'm here. Like if you would just turn to me. Turn to me. He says. The psalmist finds himself in a place of desperation. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O Lord. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before Him? Day and night I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this, I'm sorry, where is this God of yours? As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. And I had a, I read this different com, a different commentary I never read before this week on this verse because it used to be I don't know about you, but it used to be one of these. Oh, it still is. But for a while, I was always looking at this verse like, oh, that's such an incredible prayer. Yes, I just want to pray that. Oh God, like the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. 
in the commentary I read, he was like, do you realize why the psalmist was here? Because he allowed himself to forget who his God was. And so whenever we forget, whenever we enter a season where we basically have turned from God, where we've gone our way, yeah, we find ourselves parched. And that's in the commentary saying, but that's not where you always want to find yourself. And then he basically described me. He says, there are those people who use this verse as a, as a verse of, and he's like, but no, that's, that's, that shouldn't be a common occurrence in your life. And I was like, oh, wow. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? He's seeking. Day and night, I have only tears for food, he goes on. And then he goes on in verse 4, My heart is breaking. As I remember how it used to be, I walked along the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. He is recalling what it's like to be among God's people and the presence of God. And you're going to find yourselves in seasons of this. Again, it shouldn't be a daily, it's just your Christian life every day, but you're going to enter seasons. Oh, that we would be that dear. Oh, that we would remember what it's like to be among the fellowship and be, being in the presence of God. Why am I discouraged, he goes on. Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Now I am deeply discouraged, but I, but I will remember you. Even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan from the land of the Mount Mazir. I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, and through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. Remember what I said earlier? These psalmists are so raw, they're so real about their life, and yet they also remember who their God is. And that's why I encourage myself and Christians. Yes, it's okay to talk about your problems. Yes, it's okay to, to be transparent where you're at and emotionally what you're going through. But we must not get mad at other Christians who, are, who will listen to that and then offer you the reminder to look up. I can't tell you there's been so many times where I've counseled Christians and they say, oh, don't tell me to read another verse. Oh, don't tell me I need to pray. Oh, don't tell me I need then what do you want to hear? You just want me to listen to what you're going through and not offer you any encouragement to look up? No, you need one more scripture. No, you need one more hour of prayer. No, you need one more worship song. Are we returning from God? 
No, we all want to do that. Yes, life is hard. And yes, we can express kind of what we're going through. But the same pattern that we see here, how does the psalmist lift up his head? By remembering his God. He goes on, Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones, they scoff. Where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. I mean, this man is facing a really hard emotional time. I mean, he's, he, his enemies and people are questioning him. Where is your God? Where is your God? Look at all this bad stuff happening. Where is your God? They're mocking God. And I love the fact that he can be so transparent. But even in the end, he, he, he doesn't make light of it. Like he's, he's so sincere and so real. He's discouraged. His heart is sad. I don't know about you, but I battle with depression. Depression is real. But where's the hope in it? God. Lift up your head. Lift up your head. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. That's the beauty of it, you all. Life is hard. Things are going to happen. But God is good. We're going to close Proverbs 10, verse 17. Oh, that I pray that you all would be encouraged today. Proverbs 10, verse 17. People who accept discipline are on the pathway to life. But those who ignore correction will go astray. Oh, what a great nugget of wisdom to end with today. People who accept discipline are on the pathway to life. But those who ignore correction will go astray. Remember, God disciplines those that he loves. We must accept that. We must be people who are open to correction. We must be a people who are open to be held accountable by fellow Christians I've always, I've always warned you, be careful of who you're getting advice from. <laughs> you want to be able to be a person who, who is humble enough to receive correction and, then not, and, and, and receiving it, apply it. So that, look what it says there, that you will remain upon the pathway to life. If you ignore it, you'll go astray. Take your eyes off of him. You choose to go your way. There's only one end to that. Destruction. 
Oh, but that we would be a people, you all, that would know their God, that would love him with their very being, and that they will call upon him. Amen? I'm going to close this with this last song of worship, and then I'll close this in prayer.
that matters, come. You're the only thing that matters. We sing it out. You're the only thing that matters. Your presence, God.
Oh, 